This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. The galaxies we All right, welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. I am your co-host, Kara Borkowski, here with my co-host, Brianne Ruse. Good morning. Hey, good morning. (laughs) A little bumpy start, but I made it through. (laughs) Yeah, you did. You did great. You did great. (laughs) We are here with another episode, and we are getting very close to the holiday break, which is so exciting. Brianne and I, both being in higher education, are feeling like we are coming to a close, a pause, a much needed rest and sort of rejuvenation. And we thought what might be appropriate is to, I don't know, um, do some reflecting and also sharing um, around some of the work we're doing as a result of the podcast. So we're going to take some time to sort of, I don't know, bring excerpts that we've heard and you've heard from our great guests Um, It really has been an incredible fall uh, of conversations with all these wonderful people. And so I think we want to, we want to share, you know, what we've learned from them. And we also kind of want to give you, I don't know, I was trying to think of the right phrase, Brian, it feels like an inside scoop or an inside look at some of the work that you and I do uh, related to research and writing um, and really sort of sits in our learning through the, through the podcast. So, so that's the plan today. Um, it'll be a reflection on the work as well as a sharing of our work that we do, um, in our, in our roles as faculty. So we, of course, as, as many of you know, have been using the podcast and and taking advantage of these amazing conversations and bringing them to articles we write, podcasts that we've been on and really doing our own qualitative inquiry. And we know from the literature, we know from experience that you know, qualitative inquiry um, just has incredible benefits. That we can share stories. It it describes the lived experiences of individuals. And at the end of the day, you know, Brian and I both we I think we believed this when we read it in articles, but now we're living it. This idea that we can bring firsthand accounts. Um, to you as the audience. So as researchers, we do a lot of analysis and interpretation. And as part of a podcast, we don't have to do the interpreting for you. You can listen and and make decisions for yourself. So um, anything I missed there, Brianne, that you want to share before we get started? No, (laughs) I was just going to like foreshadow everything, but then that's just giving it all away. So let's just jump (laughs) in so that we can can start to have the conversation. Otherwise it's like, this is what we're going to tell you. And it's just like a teaser the whole time. So absolutely. So we thought what might be a fun way to frame this conversation is around an article that quite honestly, I stumbled across. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with research, the research process, or haven't had an opportunity to sort of dig into a literature review, um, I'm here to tell you that most of what I've learned and what I've discovered is often accidental. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and the process goes something like this. You reach out to someone, an expert, or you read an article. And as you're reading the article, you see other articles cited. And you think for a second that that article may be relevant. So you do some digging and maybe you bump into another article. And lo and behold, you discover this amazing you know research that you didn't even know existed. Um, and that's actually what happened in this in this case. Uh, Brianne and I were working on some other things, and I found this article. There was this amazing picture of the theoretical framework in the article, and I immediately dropped everything and emailed Brianne, and I was like, you got to see this article. <laughs> and so this is uh, what we are um, 
uh, lovingly referring to as the Wallace article. I don't, I don't know. Do you have the title handy, Brienne? Cause I don't, I forgot to, um, to bring it, but I'll go ahead and get started. And then I do. I have it. I do. Yeah. yeah. So it's by Carol. Yeah. It's by Carolyn Wallace, um, 2004. It's called framing new research in science, literacy, and language use authenticity, multiple discourses, and the third space. Fantastic. So at first glance, I mean, this sits in science education and science literacy. And so, you know, to, to students, graduate students out there that are doing literature reviews and, and searching out articles, this is a really good lesson in recognizing that just because the context of an article may not be um, relevant or appropriate for your research there may be a nugget of wisdom within that article. And what keyed us into this article was the mention of third space because uh, Brianne and I have been talking a lot about third space and we'll dig into that in a second. So anyway, just a sort of an aside that sometimes, you know, you don't be too quick to write off an article that isn't, you know, seated within your context. So as Brianne mentioned in the title, what really attracted us to this article was that that literal picture of the theoretical framework, the framing of the work that this this researcher does. And it's centered on this idea of multiple discourses, um, third space and authenticity. And so we're going to in this in this podcast episode, we're going to take you through these different elements of this theoretical framework and talk to you a little bit about why we think it applies um, to the work that we do. And in fact, we're working on an article right now and we thought, what a what a great opportunity to sort of continue to have this conversation and articulate some of our de- ideas. So so without further ado, I, I think I'll start, uh, Brianne, with the third space. And so, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if you're not familiar with this idea of third space, um, I wanted to define it, of course, we always on this podcast appreciate language and want to make sure that people understand what we're conveying. And so if we were to find third space, you can think of a space, uh, physical or otherwise, that really is a mutual co-presence between people. So imagine a space for multiple perspectives, honoring the talents of, you know, different people that come into the space. And we found another great article that talks about this idea of funds of knowledge and really recognizing that, um, you know, expertise, experience, training, there's a place for those different approaches to different topics um, in these spaces. And in the end, the reason we're so excited about this idea of third space, um, or one of the reasons, is that it leads to m- new ways of knowing, right? And so in higher education in particular, you know, we talk about breaking down silos, that higher education really is set up with disciplinary focuses, right? Like you, you're a English faculty member, or you're a speech and language faculty member, you're an education faculty member. And so unfortunately, the systems in place don't always invite this transdisciplinary or interdisciplinary approach. So really it's breaking down silos. Um, additionally, we were attracted to this idea because it really is a shifting of power. And we know in our own work around belonging that what's also important is this idea of equity and being able to shift power and create more inclusive spaces. Um, any thoughts, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I just, I think that the third space, I didn't know that that was an expression. I think it's something that I've thought about, but I didn't know the term really until this article came around. And then there's all this research on that idea, which was fascinating. But the way I thought about it as a way to sort of conceptualize it was the space between myself and my students. Mm. So my students are coming in with 18, 19, 20 years of experiences, and I'm coming in with my experiences and my interpretations of whatever we're going to talk about that day. and. I think our work is to meet each other in that space between us. It doesn't necessarily mean that the students should leave knowing only the terms as I've defined them. It's more that I'm sharing it, you know, if it's something as objective as terms, I'm sharing these terms, they're sharing their interpretation of them. They're giving some examples of what they think that means. And we sort of come to, I come to an understanding of where they were coming from, like how they're interpreting based on their experiences and other coursework. And then they're hopefully you know, kind of meeting me also and and maybe learning something new that they didn't know coming in. So it's really a mutual learning system. And it's that 
I love the idea of the space between and that that's it for me. And so it was very concrete when I thought about it in terms of academics and my classes. But what I appreciated about this article and about our thinking about it is that it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's in every conversation and every relationship that we have. And that space um, is different. Right. So it's a totally dynamic idea. But I think the fact that there is that there is space um, is is something that is consistent, even though the space itself, you know, changes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I appreciate that example. I mean, I think in some uh, literature, they talk about this third space with like schools and families, right? Families are diverse. And so creating space for um, the different ways, family culture, family ways of doing things, family systems, and how that often bumps up against you know, a public school system, for example. So creating third spaces for me personally, and we were going to talk about it a little bit later. I think about the third space. Um, and I think this is partly as from our training, um, in our graduate studies around sort of scholar, scholar practitioner, right. Sort of the Mm -hmm. intersections of, um, you know, what it's like to be an academic and what it's like to be a practitioner and finding space for those, those worlds to co-construct, right. And, and come up with, with new ideas. So, so why are we telling you this about the third space? Well, I think partly we just think it's interesting and we're hoping <laughs> that you'll think mm-hmm. it's interesting as well. I think it really, for us, what we've recognized is that we're really working hard um, with our podcast to, you know, create, um, I don't know, ways to disseminate all of the amazing ideas and knowledge and experience that our guests share on the air. And so What we've come to as sort of the researchers is that we think um, that podcasting offers an an equitable approach, right? A shifting of that power and flattening of hierarchy. Um, And we think it's due in part to this idea of a third space, right? Um, You know, we are inviting people into the conversation. We are engaging in the conversation right along with our participants or our guests. And we are, you know, before we turn on the recording, we are often saying, you know, look, this is a conversation. We're going to ask you some questions, but if you say something that, you know, piques our curiosity or, uh, evokes a curious question, we're going to follow the breadcrumbs. We always say that we're going to follow the breadcrumbs. And so what we feel like we're we're creating, partly intentional and partly on accident, is sort of a new way of being in a research space to recognize, as I loved, Brianne, that you used the word dynamic, um, because it feels like I think what we've talked about in our conversation is this idea of a back and forth, emotion, um, you know, it's sort of like just in time construction and processing of these ideas. Right. And so, and so the third space is really um, making some of that possible to, to invite different people in. Um, And we have, you know, lots of examples. Um, I just mentioned, you know, the fact that we have lots of different kinds of guests on the podcast. So we have parents, teachers, caregivers, leaders, researchers, wellness professionals, ministers, theologians, scholar practitioners, or I'm, I'm making assumptions on how people identify, <laughs> um, but that's, that's some of the labels. Um, in addition to sort of people's roles, we've had different contexts too, right? We've had Um, and different lenses. So this idea that people are trained in economics and math and special education and fitness in theater and higher education, ad administration, counseling, you know, athletic coaches. Um, And so I think just by virtue, my understanding of the third space, just by virtue of inviting in and honoring the diversity of our guests, I feel like we are making good attempts at creating that, that third, third space. So. Yeah. I was thinking the same thing about how we try to sort of model it and live it in our conversations, Mm -hmm. you know, being sort of this mutual co-construction, like we invite guests on because we think they're going to have something great to share. We don't exactly know. Of course, we don't know their, their context. We don't exactly know what they're going to say, nor do they know what we're bringing to the conversation. So there is a mutuality there. So we're, I think we're doing it. We're walking the walk. And the other thing that we're hoping to do is to set the context and set 
um, the conditions for that third space with our listeners. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I think you're right in noticing that our guests know that we have some curiosities and general questions that we're bringing, right? Like, I mean, we, you know, our listeners know that our podcast is about, about belonging and we take up different sort of themes related to belonging every season. But I can say in all honesty and sincerity that a lot of times, well, all the time when we ask a question, we don't know what the answer is going to be. Right. right. And which is the beauty of it. And not only do we not know what the answer is going to be, I think you and I are both perfectly okay with maybe not understanding. Right. And, and sort of probing a bit more. I mean, I, I wrote down when I was preparing for today, I wrote down just some examples of things that came up and that we've held on to. Um, Dr. Paula Clark in many, it feels like forever ago, but she talked about the dynamic nature of belonging. And I feel like that was the first time for me that I started to articulate belonging in that way. Um, just recently, Kate talked about big B and little B belonging, which I thought was so fascinating. Um, another guest talked about um, the five senses of belonging. And so, you know, and I could go on and on. Um, Dr. Kanita Williams, um, she was on uh, I'm trying to remember if it was last spring or last fall, I, I lost track at this point, but she talked about this idea. I had asked her about uh, strategies for belonging and she talked about doing versus being. Um, and mm -hmm. I feel like that for me was sort of the scratching of the surface, sur surface of, of getting to the self belonging and internal and external, which I thought was really cool. So, so I think at the end of the day for, for us as facilitators engaging in this conversation, part of the way that we create the third space is we willingly show up as learners. Every time we do this podcast, we are under, or I can't speak for, for you, Brianne, but I'm under no impression that I, that I know everything that I know what to expect, that I have an agenda. Um, I'm perfectly okay with being uncomfortable and I'm perfectly okay with acknowledging that discomfort and then asking a question, right. To gain some clarity. So, um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's it for me. Yeah. Well, that, that teased this next section up perfectly about authenticity and wouldn't it be boring if we knew what everybody was going to say? It's like, why <laughs> oh, would we totally. have the conversation? <laughs> yeah. That would, that would yeah. not be fun. Yeah. Um, so the second idea in this framework that we're talking about Lawless calls it authenticity. And so we all know the word authentic, right? It means um, refers to being true and genuine to oneself. And the way that it's described in the article and that, that we think about it is really specific to language. And Wallace describes this continuum of language from everyday language, which are, you know, words and terms that are pretty much mutually understood to more technical language. And that technical language can be more field specific jargon type vocabulary that really every field has its own specialized vocabulary. And it's not mutually understood necessarily. Um, and we talk a lot about language, right? And the, and the importance of the words that we choose. And an author named Svensson talks about the interplay between language and also power and identity which kind of blows it up a little bit. So the words that we choose really do reflect how we see the world and then how we share our interpretations of the world. So in the world of podcasting, of course, the words that, that we choose are really important. And we want to learn more about that continuum of authenticity. So if our guests come on and they share their interpretation of belonging using words that we don't know, whether it's a term we've never heard or more often, they're words that we know, but just applied differently. Yeah. And we love that mm -hmm. because we're like, oh, now I know what that word means, but I've never thought about it in this context. And that's kind of our goal really is mm -hmm. to, to meet in that, in that third space sort of, but specifically is related to language. So kind of working our way along that continuum of every day to more technical language. And again, like we said, with the third space, the goal is not to get from one end of the continuum to the other, but rather to to meet somewhere and develop that new co-constructed meaning. 
So what does that look like in practicality? Well, we always ask our guests to define belonging. So that's one of our, mm-hmm. our first questions. Usually after we check in, the first question is, you know, how do you define belonging? And sometimes that's like mind blowing for us because <laughs> the guests come in with these interpretations, like Carrie, you just named a few that are so fascinating to us. Yeah. And to build on what you said before, you know, you said, I like it when they come in and, and we don't exactly understand it because then we get to use phrases like say more about that, or can you unpack that for us? And what we're doing is encouraging that elaboration and explanation of those context specific terms to become more relatable so that we can then apply our lived experience and our understanding and our vocabulary to that new concept. And we've developed um, new meanings. And so what we tend to do is when we collaborate with our guests, we end up with this whole um, sort of word cloud in our minds of terms and ideas around belonging that we wouldn't have had, you know, before. So it's really pretty exciting. So one example of this Uh, and I actually just had coffee with her this morning, um, was Dr. Jill Snodgrass when she was talking about radical acceptance. And she's a theologian and a minister. So she has a a theological background and she's also a scholar. She's a a faculty member. So she's got a lot of background in that area. And when she talked about radical acceptance, you know, we asked her to unpack it and explain it a little bit more. And she talked about the fact that, you know, we, she believes that, that we belong just because we are. So we inherently belong And her language was because we're part of God's kingdom. But if that's not what you believe, it's just you're a human, you're on this earth, therefore you belong. So that's like her fundamental core. I think I'm interpreting it right. That that was my takeaway. Her fundamental core belief around belonging is that because you are, you belong. And I understand that. I can wrap my head around that. I think practicing that concept of radical acceptance (laughs) with Carrie shaking her head and rolling her eyes (laughs) because it's so hard. I mean, I am because I, because I, this is a great example of like, I know what the word radical means and I know what the Mm -hmm. word acceptance means, but like putting them together, I have, was having an itchy brain moment where I was like, I have to sort of understand this. And then being a Unitarian, a Unitarian Universalist, like I can get behind like, you know, the inherent worth of a human Mm -hmm. being, right? Like that, that makes a lot of sense. And then to your point, Brianne, like, then what does that mean for me? Well, that means like I have to think of people that I fundamentally don't see eye to eye with and still see the humanness in them. And ooh, yeah, that's hard. I know it's really it's so hard, <laughs> so hard. And um, I mean, I don't know Jill very well, but I do think that she practices this, you oh, know, to yeah. the extent that she can. I just get that sense from her. Yeah. Um, and somebody else who I think does as well as father Greg Boyle. And I know you've read his tattoos mm-hmm. on the heart and he's written, uh, I think four books now about his experience with former gang members through homeboy industries. And he's someone whose humanness is just, I, to me, it's like aspirational, you know, it's just this like next level, somebody who can look past the things that these people have done, which are the most horrific things that you can imagine, really murder, you know, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just sees their humanness and their self-worth and he sees what's happened to them before. Yeah. Um, anyway, that concept of radical acceptance is an example of how we worked along that continuum of authenticity. So mm-hmm. first we asked her to unpack the definition, then we applied it. We actually talked about Father Greg Boyle in that mm-hmm. conversation. Um, so it was this active process of really trying to understand what she was proposing as her definition and then applying it. And then, you know, big B, little B, like, hey, there, we have plenty of examples. But I think that hopefully explains the authenticity piece. Yeah, I, I think it does. And I, I think I just want to add, you know, when you said, when, when you opened and started to transition to authenticity and said, you know, well, you know, it wouldn't be any fun if we came to the table sort of knowing all the answers. And I absolutely agree. I think the thing I wanted to highlight for our listeners and maybe just say it out loud is I think the other piece of that is, unfortunately, there's a history in sort of the the story of research where researchers, you know, still often think about doing research on mm, instead of yeah. research with. And so I think part of authenticity really is acknowledging, and we acknowledge this, like we're partners in this. And I was trying to think of a good metaphor. I couldn't think of a good metaphor. I just, I just think it's like imagining that you have 
a single lens that you're looking through, or you have two crayons and you're drawing on a piece of paper and then Brienne comes along and adds her color to the paper. And then somebody else comes mm -hmm. and adds their color. And when you hold that up, you just have a much more expansive understanding of something. And I think, you know, you said it best, Brienne, when you said, you know, well, language is what we have to communicate on this podcast. And so when I heard you say that, I thought, you know what, we have a responsibility to make sure we're, we're sort of exploring that, right? Like it's not like belonging isn't represented by <laughs> one phrase as we right. have, as we have demonstrated with our guests over and over again, right? There are definitions of belonging. Like, be, you know, I think my go-to was always, you know, being in a space where I feel seen period. Right. But that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. And it's my part of the story of belonging. And so I think what I love is that we've, again, I can't think of a good metaphor, but I'm just seeing like, I guess the word cloud, right? Like belonging mm -hmm. really is a collage of feelings and words and ideas. And we're doing our level best to represent that in a true way. And so I think when I was listening, I was like, that's, that's why authenticity is so important. Cause that's what we're trying to do, right? Like bring authenticity to even the idea of belonging. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of power to language. I also think that belonging is, is our thing. I think you could take any concept yeah. like belonging and have similar conversations around it. Yeah. Which is why it's so important to gain multiple perspectives on anything. Right. Absolutely. I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think you're right. I think it, we should absolutely say, because like we said at the beginning, this, the Wallace framework was not uh, an exploration of belonging. It was science literacy. Um, so she's applying it in a very different context on a very different topic. If I could be a kind of geeky for a moment and, and be meta, if you will, I, what I love about the work that we're doing is we're studying belonging we're thinking about inclusion and the way in which we go about our work reflects the priorities that we have in our research, right? Like we're, we are trying to come at this work with belonging and inclusion and equitable, you know, opportunities in mind. So I think it's, I love that, how that really comes through for us. And I think because we study belonging and write about belonging, we have this really unique opportunity to both write about belonging and reflect it in our practices. So I think that's kind of yeah. cool. Yep. I agree. I mean, I think that's why this paper has been a lot of fun to, to brainstorm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we talked about third space. We talked about the, the sort of role and necessary piece of authenticity. The other corner of this triangle is multiple discourse um, and the way that Wallace talks about it in her paper and sort of fill in the gaps where I miss Brianne, um, mm -hmm. she talks about private to public. And in the context of science liter literacy, she's really using examples like when um, kids in a classroom are talking amongst themselves, right? You could imagine in a science class, maybe they're doing a, a lab or something, right? They're working on some little project together and they're talking about this, this idea using their own language, using their own experience. And then the idea of public, at least my understanding is bringing this out sort of to the larger class and connecting it to the technical, right? So you go from sort of, and, and what she argues, and, and I, as an educator, I fund, I totally agree, is that by connecting and giving students an opportunity to explore these things in their own sort of language and in their private spaces, it deepens their understanding and you're able to help it resonate and make better connections. So did I, did I explain that you think fully? Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the, <clears throat> one of the stark sort of contrast on, along the continuum that she draws is like the casual lab bench conversation among students contrasted with some evidence-based mm. scientific peer-reviewed journal article that's <laughs> sort of held as doctrine, right? And like the vast space maybe between those two things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and building that bridge in some ways, right? To, mm -hmm. to, to So that people can understand it. And I think yeah. as, as we were preparing for this podcast, and I even think as we wrote the paper, um, I'll speak for myself, I was having trouble 
separating third space from multiple discourse. Um, cause I think, I think there is overlap. Um, mm -hmm. I do think if to the extent you're able to create a third space, you are automatically inviting in multiple discourses, right? I feel like you can't, you can't have one without the other maybe. Um, so, so I think that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, did you want, I know you mentioned, um, the many ways of knowing and Nick Susanis in there. Did you want to add your two cents? Yeah. I mean, I just think when I think about multiple discourse, I think about the gold standard in higher ed, which is the peer reviewed article and there's value to that. And I just think it's not the only way um, that we can be thinking about sharing information yeah. and, you know, thinking about the process that a paper has to go through to get to that point. It's a lot of checks and balances by people who have been given a lot of power and they've been given that power because they've been brought up in systems that empower them. And so there's kind of a, a big discussion around who is the peer review board and mm. they kind of decide who, what information is deemed worthy of, of publication and, and therefore sharing. And that's what becomes the evidence for evidence-based practice. It's, it's a lot, there's a lot to that. Um, so there's that piece and I do see, see value in it. I just also think that there are other ways to share and, the article that we read in our program, Many Ways of Knowing, it's by Hartman. I mean, it's from 1990. It's not new. Yeah. But she just talks about that. She kind of breaks that down a little bit, the peer review process and what's really behind it and advocates for the idea that there are many ways of knowing. And Carrie, I know you've talked about Nick Susanis's graphic novel, Unflattening, a lot. And um, I finally read it and I totally understand why you love it so much. Mm -hmm. And I am not I just haven't really gotten into graphic novels very much. My daughter loves them, which is great. I just haven't really read them. And then I read this and I was like, whoa. Um, so the book is unflattening and very much like we're talking about, it is both about the idea of unflattening and in and of itself, because it's a graphic depiction, it is unflattening. And so he talks about kind of perceptions and he talks about the limitations of the written word and the, the potential of graphic art to convey different ideas that the written word can't. And so in other words, there are many ways of, of getting to know something. And I think the podcast aligns with that. So whereas Nick Susanis talks about the power of art um, in a, on a two day, 2D, you know, like a piece of paper, we talk about podcasting and the strengths of podcasting. One of them being the power of language, not as much around the words that we choose, but more in how we say them. And that there's so much meaning behind the nonverbals of our messages, right? I mean, so much emotion is conveyed in the tone that we use and um, the prosody and the inflection of our voices. And that is, I think, one of the biggest parts about and benefits of podcasting, because you are hearing people's stories. Not only are you hearing firsthand accounts, which you could read, you could read a firsthand account, but there's a different power to hearing it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that aligns with the many ways of knowing and the multiple discourses. Yeah. I mean, we're just starting to scratch the surface of you and I, I mean, around mm -hmm. sort of the nonverbal, right? I mean, the paper we're writing yeah. right now is really just thinking about this framework and its application to podcasts. I suspect and hope that at some point in the future, we'll explore that, that piece a little bit more. Cause I, th I think you're right. Um, and yes, I love I love uh, Dr. Susanis's book. It's just if you if you haven't had a chance to read it, it really is a quick read because it's a graphic novel. It's not, um, you know, it's it's not sort of this dense academic piece. I think I was just telling a colleague the other day. I don't think I've ever seen someone who was able to take academic literature and express it in such a beautiful way. And even in that graphic novel, I think I'm not a, I'm not a graphic novel reader either. My kids are, I think that's the other really beautiful thing about graphic novels is like you're seeing and you're given, um, maybe these are affordances. I don't know if I'm using that right, but like there's different ways for you to take in that information on the page as you open it. Mm -hmm. Right. You could be a reader, you could like pictures, so you could like shapes and movement. So there's just so much about it that was really cool. So I think that was that was a good connection that you made um, to the podcast for sure. Um, when I'm think when I think about the many ways of knowing and multiple discourses, the radical acceptance was the first example I came up with. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna skip over that one since we've already talked about it. the The other one that came up for me 
was um, last fall, we did a 10 part series on leadership and belonging. And um, Danielle Scarano and I, if you remember, and if you haven't listened, go back and listen. We interviewed uh, Miss Icopathia, who's one of the leading DEI experts in the country, working with lots of um, corporations. She's done lots of work with Brene Brown. And she came on the podcast and we were talking about paradox in leadership. And, you know, because as Brianne said, because we really value and know the importance of language, one of the first things we were doing with with our guests is defining paradox. And so I used Webster's dictionary definition of, of a paradox. And it's really around seemingly being able to hold seemingly conflicting ideas. And I don't, I did not know Iko Bathia, you know, I only know her from that podcast. And what I learned from Iko is one, she is incredibly measured in, in what she says and how she says it. So she is not afraid of the, the silent pause, which I love and admire about her. And she paused when I gave that definition. And the reason she paused is because she then shared and articulated that, she was struggling a bit, and that's my word struggling. I don't remember exactly I'm paraphrasing. She was struggling with that definition because she felt that seemingly conflicting set individuals up to be on different sides, opposing sides. And so, you know, she said rather than being defensive, she wanted to think about or become from a place of integration. And of course, if you've if you've listened to any of our episodes, I think maybe we've dedicated at least parts of episodes to that word integrate. And so mm -hmm. in for me, that was like a perfect example of multiple discourse, right? That I came to the table with Webster, right? Webster's dictionary definition of paradox and through a series of exchanges arrived at this idea that, ooh, I'm not sure I'm that comfortable with seemingly conflicting either. And mm -hmm. from then on, which is crazy, um, I changed how I thought about paradox and it really is being able to hold those two ideas. Um, and it, and I mean, it really did. I know this sounds silly, but it, it really did shift from like, it shifted me. Um, which I think again, if we're going back to, one of the purposes of this episode in the paper is we're thinking about a different way to conduct research and how often do you hear a researcher admit or own that they were shifted while engaging with a participant. And I think that mm -hmm. is the beauty or one of the many beauties of approaching research in this way, using um, a third space authenticity and multiple discourse. Well, yeah, right. Because it's not, <clears throat> it wasn't like a fluke that, 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 that happened. It's, it's our goal Yeah, is to, is to learn and to shift. You don't know how it's going to happen. You had no idea that she was going to rock your world on the, on the fundamental definition of that term. <laughs> like first but, question, by the way, like first <laughs> <laughs> with like super accomplished, maybe a little bit intimidating guest for you know, like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So I guess I just feel like mission accomplished, right? Yeah. In that in that sense, because yeah. our goal, and I think that's why this framework resonated with us so much. It's not just that it aligns nicely and we could like make connections with what we do. It really does help us to articulate our goals and sort of the core of this work, which is to live in that third space. And it is to co-construct meaning and it is to flatten the power curve yeah. um, and just have conversations with people and, and learn a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the context of that, and I said this to a couple of the leaders who came on last fall before we started recording, um, I was nervous. I mean, mm -hmm. for me, Iko, uh, Bethia and a couple of others, well, most all of them that came on last fall, um, I was very nervous, you know, cause I mean, they're doing all of this really important work. And so right out of the gate, like, <laughs> she pushed back on my question and, you know, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think it is, I hope, I think it is my way. Like I can own that discomfort and be like, huh, that's, and just be curious. Like I just come to the space curious and I 
was able to move on. But you could imagine in a sort of more formal, peer-reviewed academic setting that a researcher who hasn't done their work may take that as an affront, right? Mm -hmm. who, who is this person to question somebody who's doing research on this thing, et cetera, et cetera. And that's not what we're about in terms of research. Like that's not what, that wouldn't be inviting and honoring the third space or the sort of reason that we do the work that we do, right? So yeah, well, I was talking with someone recently <clears throat> in academia and the idea, this person was describing sort of generally the idea of the third space. And I said, Ooh, I just learned that's a thing. Like there's research on that. Have you heard of it? It's called the third space, blah, blah, blah. And this person sort of dodged the bullet mm -hmm. and pretended that they had maybe heard of it, but couldn't really support it because they didn't want to be told that there was something that they didn't know about this. I'm like, yeah. oh gosh, come on. Just like, just look it up. It's very cool. You know, I, I could yeah. feel the, the armor going up on this person I was speaking with. I'm just thinking, okay, this, you know, but I, we don't want to digress too much, but to me, that just goes to Kate McMahon's big B little B. Like, mm -hmm. where's the big B in that? Because your big B is like firm. I'm a learner. I'm curious. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. To be challenged. It's uncomfortable to be challenged on the spot with the red recording light flashing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that doesn't mean that it's not an okay situation to be in. Right. So. Yeah. And like, what do you miss if you. Oh, so much. Right. Like, I mean, right. I'm totally paraphrasing, but what I remember from the many things I've listened to Brene Brown say is that if you armor up, you're not just keeping out the bad, you're also keeping out the good. To me, mm -hmm. it's you're keeping out the possibilities, right? And so if I had shut, even if I had not shut Ico down, because I don't think I would have done that, if I had just sort of glossed over it, been like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I would have missed an entire conversation, <laughs> right? An entire opportunity to explore as a researcher, right? So yeah, so I think it's, yeah, for so many reasons and we could, we could go off on a tangent and I'll go on one and then bring us right back. I think what, and this, I'm literally processing this and speaking it at the same time. So bear with me for a second. I think that what we're talking about is a fundamental reason why diversity is critical. Diversity isn't just critical because it's important for organizations to represent the larger population. Diversity is critical because it brings huge value into the work that you're doing, the conversations you're having, the solutions you're trying to build, the problems you're trying to understand. Like, it's not about diversity for the sake of diversity. Like, diversity in its authenticity honors the many ways of knowing. Right. Right. And that's yeah. what we're really trying to get at here. So, um, sorry, that was like a tangent and I'll, I'll, I'll come back, but it just sort of came to me as we were having this conversation. Mm hmm. All right. So where are we? So we talked about third space. We talked about authenticity and multiple discourse, which are, if you didn't know it before listening today, these, these are features of our podcast. We believe that are features of our podcast and we are working very hard to, to make sure these sort of elements show up every time we come together on this podcast. And I think it's we didn't have the language before we found this article to put these connections together, but I feel like I can speak for both of us when we are, we are firm in our conviction that this is how we want our podcast to appear. Um, mm -hmm. And so we are working hard right now to write a paper that applies this framework, which was situated in science literacy. We're applying it to um, the podcast research. And so, you know, We've talked a little bit, Brianna, already about the implications of the framework, so I don't know um, how much more we want to say um, at this point. Um, do you have anything you wanted to add at this point? About the framework? No, I think that that was good. We were just trying to end with implications. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, part of the implication is just I'm super excited that we have I don't know. I, I already said it, but I really am excited that we have, we now have like a language, a cohesive story, a framework of this work we're doing. And it just, it feels more organized. I think the other thing it does, whenever I get clarity on these kinds of things, I can really check in and make sure I'm being intentional 
right? Um, as a coach, I talk a lot about what are your priorities, what are important, and now are you aligning, right? Are your actions honoring those priorities? And I feel like by naming this framework, I'm also naming for myself what's important to me in this podcast. And now I can really make sure I'm being intentional about making sure those features show up. Um, the other thing that I noticed when I was prepping for this podcast, which I think is crazy, is that, and it's 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 related to sort of the meta comment that I made earlier, is that like, I think I've been either trying to operate in the third space or operating in the third space my entire career, um, but mm -hmm. I didn't have the language around it. I mean, I I, I earned a PhD in policy, I, sorry, I earned a master's in economics, decided intentionally not to pursue a PhD in economics because I really wanted to do applied work. I wanted to be in like a practitioner space. So I got a PhD in policy. Um, and then I, I spent much of my faculty career working with ED students who are scholar practitioners at heart. And um, so I just think it's cool that like, I've, I've been sort of on the edges of third space for most of my career. And it's taken me this long to realize that that's what it was. <laughs> so, mm. so, um, yeah, so I think it's, I think for me, the implications of this are just bringing more intentionality and checking in to make sure we're, we're honoring what we really care about and what we're committed to. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um, one of my core values is connection, and I, I don't think it's really necessarily in this way, but it came to my mind yesterday as I was thinking about this and preparing for this. I know that you, Carrie, read Dr. Deb Meyerson's book called Identity Theft, yes. and it's such a good book if you haven't read yeah. it out there. But um, briefly, it's the story of this woman, Dr. Deborah Meyerson, who is this uh, tenured Stanford professor. And a lot of her work, actually, her scholarship was around issues of identity and um, kind of workplace advocacy and things like that. And um, she unfortunately had a stroke and has aphasia. And she wrote a book with her son about her journey. It's called Identity Theft. It's her identity journey as um, somebody who's living with aphasia. And it's, it's really an incredibly powerful account of her struggles um, through aphasia. But she also interviews lots of people and they say in the book, um, and Deb and, and her husband, Steve, actually came to our class earlier in the week. And so she's fresh on my mind. Mm -hmm. And they say, you know, if you've met one person with aphasia, you've met one person with aphasia. So you can't generalize everybody's experiences. But the connection to our content here today is this. So we asked Deb for advice. And her first advice was don't have a stroke, <laughs> which, which was good advice and got a good laugh. Uh, and her second piece of advice and this was directed at graduate students studying speech language pathology is to listen. Mm. And she means listen to the stories, listen to the experiences of the people you're working with, listen to what they're saying, listen to what they're not saying, listen to their care partners, their advocates. And I think that really active, empathetic, engaged listening that she's describing is third space. Mm. So she's asking the students to understand to the extent that they can to listen to that lived experience of the people with aphasia. And by the way, listening to someone with aphasia is really hard because they don't have a lot of language necessarily, depending on how severe it is. And Deb, I mean, she's come such a long way. She has so much more language now than she did before. It's much easier for her to express herself now, but it's still a lot of work. And so it requires a lot of patience for people to listen to people with aphasia um, to explain all this, but it was such a poignant connection. And it also reminded me of Brene Brown's discussion of um, walking in other people's shoes. So when you're thinking about listening to someone, it's not, the goal is not to walk in somebody's shoes. It's to ask them what it's like to walk in their shoes and to listen and to believe their story. And that piece that listening without believing or listening and believing alludes back to Jill's radical acceptance. I mean, all of this, it, it's like all these interwoven themes to me. And um, before her stroke, Deb was able to articulate these really brilliant ideas that she had with, with some ease, right? She was writing articles and writing books and there's video online of her doing formal presentations at Stanford and Harvard. And, um, and now she really struggles with that. 
And she also yet is still able to connect and she's still able to meet us in that third space and her authentic language has changed, uh, but the meaning is still there. So I just think there's so much that we can draw from this Wallace framework that extends well beyond the science, you know, um, ed space that I think it was intended for. Yeah. Mm, I love that. I love that advice. Just listen. That resonates mm -hmm. very loudly yeah. for me. And I think it's a good, it's a good place to start wrapping up. I was just, I have a book on my desk. Um, people can't see it. It's the Michael Bungay Stanier, the coaching habit where at, say less, ask more. It was, he was on um, Brene Brown. It was the advice trap. Um, oh yeah. I have that book. I haven't yeah, read it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, where essentially he talks about that a very similar strategy, but just in a different way, this idea that like we often speak too soon to give advice and we end up giving advice for potentially the wrong challenge or issue because we didn't listen long enough. And I think if I were going to leave our listeners with anything, it would be when you're in those moments and feeling like you either know the conclusion of the story you're frustrated because the person won't get to where they need to be you're frustrated because you think you know this person i would urge you to ask one more question mm -hmm. because the the longer you're willing to sit there and the patience you have brianna's is absolutely right you ask another question and their humanity starts to emerge you ask another question and it becomes brighter and you ask another question then it doesn't become as hard to see the humanity that Brianne and I alluded to early of being so challenging. So, so I think it's great advice. And as we go into the winter break, and as we think about 2023, you know, we always talk about um, simple things are hard to do. And so what I would challenge folks to do in, as we enter 2023 is ask another question and listen. So um Brianne, thank you for this conversation. This was- Thank you. This has been fun. Yeah, this was fantastic. All right, everybody. This has been another episode of Tell Me This with uh, Carrie Borkowski and Brianne Roos. Thank you so much for listening. And don't forget, listen in and ask one more question. You might just don't know what you're going to learn. Take care, everybody. Your last Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.